Good morning. We on? We hot? First Corinthians two two this morning. The title of our sermon, which you can't see up there, is CrossFit. If you want, you can turn to First Corinthians two two, but it'll be up there. First Corinthians two two. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Someone said to me before the sermon this morning, boy, I'm glad you're doing just one verse. I don't know if that's a compliment or not. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The goal of the sermon is rather modest and uncomplicated. To proclaim Christ and Him crucified and to remind many of you and perhaps persuade others that meaningful discipleship to Jesus is God's purpose for our existence. And that to be a disciple of Jesus is to be cross-fit. A discipler, excuse me, a disciple is a follower or a student or perhaps even in our day and age an apprentice. The cross fits us for meaningful discipleship to Jesus, which is God's purpose for our lives. So I shall set forth the, ch- the challenge and the purpose of being cross I may drop a few terms that some folks are not familiar with, but I trust I have anticipated that sufficiently and will also explain those. Words are great, and words with more than three syllables are fun. Sometimes big words are unnecessary and a little bit showy, and other times there's just no other word that will do the trick. Even the Bible throws around some pretty hefty words like propitiation. Some of us are well acquainted with the term, and some of us are right this moment counting how many syllables are in the word and have no idea what it is. For the Christian, it is the most precious five-syllable word in the English language. It'll only get you 16 points in the game board scrabble, but then everything is everything in Christ is value added. Amen? So don't be looking up and Googling how many points each little score is worth here. Propitiation. And I'll define that term to make it clear to you later in the sermon. You may be familiar with the term CrossFit from the world of physical exercise. Worldwide, it's been the number one program of physical fitness with millions of members who pay hefty monthly fees because it's well worth every dollar to them. The United States Marines have adopted this type of fitness program. CrossFit engages all kinds of major muscle groups and minor muscle groups and stabilizer muscles. It also involves cardio and respiratory for the heart, the entire circulatory system, and one's breathing. The exercises are intense. Some have funny names like burpees, push jerk. That's not something you do at camp. Metcon, toes to bar, box jump. Intermittent fasting. Often core groups give themselves goofy names as well. Bros and barbells. Waste management. Cirque de sore legs. Legs miserable. And slim possible. So you see the camaraderie that goes on in these groups. The kind of camaraderie this builds. And that's because really you need mutual encouragement when you're really doing this kind of extreme exercise. 
At Camp Impact, any of you that have been to Camp Impact in the past, you know at the beginning of the week you come up with a name for your group. And that name sort of sets the tone for where you're going to be all week and for what you're going to be doing. An article on the CNBC website says that it says this of the cross founder, whose last name is Glassman, said, Glassman isn't just a businessman. In his mind, he's delivering a profound metabolic truth about diet and exercise to a fat, sedentary, disease-ridden population. And the truth hurts. Another article reads, CrossFit proponents see their training as a way to build whole body functional fitness, coupled with preparing a person for most physical challenges. The method employs various calisthenics, free weights, gymnastic rings, kettlebells and pull-up bars. The goal of CrossFit is to create the quintessential athlete. Small wonder the CrossFit founder, a former gymnast, is called an evangelist of the fitness program that he began. Well, I took dominion over those two quotes this morning and I'm going to revise them for our purposes. Today and every time the cross of Jesus is accurately proclaimed, what is being delivered is a profound metaphysical truth about God to a spiritually lost, sin-ridden population. A spiritually lost, sedentary, sin-ridden population. Metaphysical. Concerned with the fundamental nature of reality. It's a concern with the way things really are, whether we believe it or not, whether we accept it or not. Truth is not dependent on the person that hears it and believes it. Truth exists outside of our belief of it. So, when we talk about metaphysical, we're talking about the true big picture. So when Christ crucified is accurately proclaimed, what is being proclaimed is the truth about the big picture of God and humankind and the broken relationship between them about sin and heaven and hell and joy and worship and the glory of God. And when we say the glory of God, we mean the unique wonder and splendor and power and majesty and above all elseness of God. A.W. Tozer rightly observed, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So what comes to your mind when you think about God? Maybe you don't think about God. Maybe you are sedentary. Sedentary. Tending to spend too much time seated, somewhat inactive. This, of course, can be true of both believers and unbelievers of Jesus. An unbeliever may just spend too much time not thinking about spiritual realities. Ignoring feelings of God-assigned genuine moral guilt only gets in touch with the big picture when he must attend a funeral or is perhaps confronted with a life-threatening illness or situation. Otherwise, he is spiritually sedentary. Then there are also those in many churches that we refer to as pew warmers. Their backside is always in the pew, but their hearts and heads may be somewhere else. Or they're just not maturing. They're just not growing in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. You know, we get great concern when with a newborn child, things aren't progressing the way that they should be. We have a couple of expecting moms, and you know, that's one of the things that's on a mom's mind. Is this, and and then as the child begins to grow, you, you look for signs of thriving. There are those in the churches, for a number of reasons, that aren't thriving, growing in the grace and knowledge. The Apostle Paul had to deal with spiritual babies, right? Even in the very same letter that we're getting our message from this morning in the third chapter he says to those in Corinth 
I, my brothers and sisters, was unable to talk to you as spiritual men. I had to talk to you as unspiritual, as yet babies in the Christian life. And my practice had been to feed you, as it were, with milk and not with meat. You were unable to digest meat in those days, and I don't believe you can do it now. For you are still unspiritual. All the time that there is jealousy and squabbling among you, you show that you are. You are living just like men of the world. Second quote revised. The goal of CrossFit discipleship is to create the quintessential human being. The quintessential, the most perfect example. The goal of CrossFit discipleship is to produce perfect examples of human beings. This discipleship is ongoing in this life and is finally completed at the resurrection. That's another sermon. Heaven, or the new heavens and the new earth that God will bring about, is the eternal dwelling place of perfected human beings. A perfected human being is one whose constant pleasure is the unhindered presence of our glorious God and whose constant worship is the singular expression of that constant pleasure. That is what a perfected human being is. That is what a a human being was intended to be when God created human beings. Someone whose absolute pleasure is the abiding presence of God and for who worship is the only fit expression for that constant pleasure. So, the message of Christ crucified is proclaimed to believers and unbelievers, although, of course, for vastly different reasons. What hangs in the balance for believers is fullness of joy. What hangs in the balance for unbelievers is hell and fullness of agony. But do keep in mind that a believer is a disciple of Jesus. A believer is not someone who just says, I believe in Jesus. Better to say I'm a follower of Jesus than a Christian. Because there's a lot of, there's a lot of contemporary stuff in the culture that has come to sort of redefine Christianity in terms of just social action and moral complaint. And so I, I would suggest to you that people call yourselves, if you are, a follower of Jesus. What I can say boldly then with that is that with the crucifixion of Jesus, humani- without the crucifixion of Jesus, humanity is incomplete. Which is why we can so appreciate the Apostle Paul's words here in 2.2. What he says in, in this part of the letter is a reminder to them of what he was doing. The 18 months he was with them. He had an unchanging focus those 18 months, three years earlier. The focus was Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It came up in everything he did, everything he said. He resolved to get the message through. You know, my wife has a funny way of reminding me of many things in many ways. It kind of looks like this. A day before the trip to the beach. Pat, will you please get the Diet Pepsi blanket and put it in the trunk for our trip to the beach? Night before trip to the beach. Honey, don't forget we need to get that blanket out of the closet and put it in the trunk of the car. Morning of the trip. Hey, babe. That Diet Pepsi blanket is great for the beach, isn't it? That sure is handy when we go to the beach or on picnics. About 27 minutes later. Aurora, you going to help Daddy pack the truck? Maybe you can carry that big Diet Pepsi blanket downstairs for him. 
in the car halfway between here and the beach. Pat, did you remember to put the Diet Pepsi blanket in the trunk? Um, I thought you asked the road to do that. See, the blanket's a key part of the trip, right? No blanket, everything gets covered in sand, which gets in your clothes, which gets in your food, which gets outside in the cold sweat of the bottle. See, my wife is gifted in singular focus. She resolved in that instance to one thing. Get the Diet Pepsi blanket in the car so we have it at the beach. Paul says, when I was with you those 18 months, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And he used the preaching of the cross to do that, and he constantly reminded them in various situations about the primacy of the cross. Eighteen months. So, even if some Corinthians only heard Paul once a week, I'm sure Paul was teaching regularly, and I'm sure Paul was also in the synagogue on Saturdays, because he was still in some ways witnessing to Jews when he first went to the various places he went. The first thing Paul did was go into the synagogue on a Saturday, and then on Sundays and every other day of the week, Paul was engaging whoever would come and hear him. So even for those that only went on that one day of the week, that means if he was there for that period of time, they heard 72 times Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul determined to focus nowhere else. And we know what it is to resolve something. What does it take to resolve to do something, to stick to it? It means you will to do this thing, and at the same time, you will not to do any number of other things. Paul reserved, he determined, he settled on the particular focus of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Well, what else might he have focused on? If he's so insistent on this being his focus, what else might he have focused on? Well, first of all, we need to know that that Paul's call, Paul's apostleship, which came from Jesus, came first as a priority with this command. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So we know that Sort of baptism was a bit of a priority because Paul says I didn't come to baptize. So we know whatever else was going on, baptism was a priority for some. And apparently, the person baptizing you was also important because some people were disciples of Apollos and some people were following Capus or Peter. Some people were following Paul. Paul said, was Jesus divided? Back in chapter 1 and verse 18, after having said that, he goes on to preach the gospel. And he says, Christ did not send me to preach, I'm sorry, did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with eloquent words of wisdom. Let the cross be emptied of its power. So what's going on here? Christ sent Paul to preach the gospel. In this context, that's just another way of saying Christ and him crucified. That's the gospel. But there seems to have been in Corinth, according to the context of chapter 1, divisions within the church. Some of Chloe's household tattletailed. They ratted out what was going on in the churches to Paul. Said, Paul, things are kind of a mess in the church. There were divisions within the church. So, Paul had to deal with these divisions. Some of them were just unimpressed by Paul altogether. They were just unimpressed by Paul's stature and his rather plain appearance. His appearance was apparently quite unremarkable. A little diminutive man probably hunched over from the beatings that he got and all the other things that went on in his life. You see that in the time of the the Greco-Roman world, there was a lot of philosophy. Philosophy was very big in those days, as was logic, as was wisdom. These were some of the key components of the culture. This is what they did, okay? They didn't didn't have Twitter then, they didn't have Facebook then. This is what they did. This was what they did. They had wisdom and they had schools of rhetoric and people were trained to learn how to speak publicly. 
And so the listeners became very hooked into the way that a speaker spoke. Does he use... I mean, you could go online and look this stuff up, okay? Does he use his hands the right way? Does he have inflection at the right times? Does he use more than three-syllable words? Does he come from this school of rhetoric? Does he come from that school of rhetoric? Does he come from this school of philosophy? And on and on and on and on and on. And this is what was important. So the listeners looked to be impressed in that way. And so the messenger was far more important than the content of the message. And we know, don't we, that history is full of people who were impressive speakers and who led their listeners to madness. So this is kind of the, kind of the toastmasters of its day, or maybe some of you may recall Dale Carnegie, his school of public speaking. This is what this was. We have a similar problem today, both in and out of the church. For whatever reason, celebrities are considered the voice of what we all ought to be listening to out there. They get all kinds of media coverage, no matter how uninformed and ignorant they truly are on a number of subjects, not the least of which is Christianity. Sometimes even Christians put too much stock in celebrities. It's a wonderful that star athletes are also Christian, but just the fact that they thank their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ after a win just isn't that noteworthy. It doesn't carry weight at all in the conversion of sinners. Unless, of course, their sphere of influence or the sport that they're involved in gives them the opportunity to speak about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And Corinth, they were sort of struck, starstruck in a similar way. Someone followed this one, someone followed that one. And this is what Paul was referring to when he spoke about Christians still being in the baby stage that I mentioned earlier. They were putting other things ahead of Christ and Him crucified. Christ and Him crucified was not the focus of their lives and ministries and witness to the world around them. We should should be involved in politics, I think. We should have a voice in that. We should have a voice in what goes on in the culture. A voice about contemporary issues. We should be doing all that we can, I think, to make the world look like it was intended to be. But let's be cross-fit when we do that. You know, downstairs, Randy was talking about in the in his experience in logging, what he has seen is a lot of just stripping of the environment altogether, because there's so much money in it that you go into an area and you just clear that out. He considers, I'm sorry, considers himself a poor logger, because he goes in and he tries to maintain the integrity of the forest and he becomes aware of things. So, and I think we need to do that in the public sphere as well. Okay, we need to go in the right way. These other things, as Paul say, they empty the cross of its power because it distracts from the power of the cross. This does not mean that Paul just came and sort of you know, spoke like a simpleton or a dummy. You know, Paul was trained up as a Roman citizen. That was a very rare thing. And Paul got a very good re- education. And by the time he was 21, he probably had the equivalent of two PhDs in philosophy and wisdom and everything else. Not to mention Hebrew and Greek, probably spoke Latin. Paul was a very bright guy. I'm sure he could have engaged in philosophical jousting with the best of them. But that meant nothing to him. What people thought of his stature meant nothing to them, to him. We are an image-based culture. We are just obsessed with how do I look, how do I sound. We look at pictures that we're in, and the first thing we do is look at the picture to see what we look like. We, we see a video that we're in. The first thing we do is look to see what do we... I mean, we're just obsessed with this. We can't walk by a mirror without looking. We can't walk by dark glass without looking. Our cell phones become 
mirrors if you shut them off. And so I mean, we were just obsessed with image. And what do people think about me? And Paul, I just don't think, had that in him at all. Today, there's a very useful school of religious philosophy. I think that the church must be engaged in with academia. We should not retreat from academia. It's a sort of a form of pre-evangelism. But, but even in that respect, I think the goal is to lay the groundwork for the presentation of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Beyond question, Christ and Him crucified is the central message of all Scripture. And without exception, it's the pivotal event in the history of time, space, and the universe. This is the singular greatest, most significant in the history of mankind and the universe, I dare say, is the crucifixion of Christ. For meaningful disciple to Jesus is God's purpose for our existence. And to be a disciple of Jesus is to be cross-fit. The book of Revelation, the final book of the Bible, has as its outstanding and central feature, Jesus Christ crucified. We could have Revelation 5 up there, please, Brett, 9 to 14. If you want to turn there, Revelation 5, 9 to 14. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels, numbering of myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And so we have there this beautiful glimpse of what all of time and creation has been moving towards. This is what we're all moving towards. This is the great scene when we stand before our Lord and God. This is what we're moving towards. This is the moment we're waiting for. Notice that Jesus, He's the Lamb slain here in the scene. He alone is worthy to open the scroll that is mentioned early in the chapter. And what this scroll contains is the history of mankind. It's all the decrees of God. It's all the plans of God. And somehow those have to get put into effect. And if you read earlier back in the verse, there's weeping because there's no one worthy to open the scroll. Well, Jesus steps up and He alone is worthy. Why? Because He was slain. And He ransomed all kinds of people so that He could make of them perfected humanity. A humanity fit to be in the presence of God and minister to God. God's purposes are all fulfilled in Christ and Him crucified. The cross has always been plan A. The cross was never plan B. The cross is not God's plan B to uh, a people He created who then rebelled against Him and God just got angry and had to come up with something. The The cross has always been plan A. And throughout His ministry, Paul insisted on the centrality of preaching the cross. His letter to the church in Galatia, he writes, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Now, I'm going to discuss that verse in some more detail in a moment. So it's not that Paul taught nothing else, but the cross was the central focus of that preaching. Okay, he spends an entire chapter in the same letter talking about the resurrection. It's the most qualified, fullest uh, exposition of the resurrection in all of Scripture. But he certainly taught that only the crucifixion of Jesus makes all other subject matter comprehensible and worth knowing. The resurrection of Jesus first required his death. All new covenant imperatives or direction that Paul gives, any discussion on Christian ethics he engages in, he does as a matter of the outworking of the central focus of the cross. 
For Paul, it's the cross of Jesus that makes us fit to address and discuss a hundred other things in our theology, our study of God. A comparison, once again, to the world of CrossFit. So, CrossFit inevitably leads to a healthier you. There's just no denying this. Right? So it strengthens your core so that your overall balance is intact and you don't hurt your back. You, you, you're a better fit for yard work. You're better fit for long work, uh, walks, for hiking, for golf, for mountain climbing, for goofing around with much younger people, for swimming, for stamina, for when your 22-year-old son thinks he's big enough to take you now. Physical exercise all contri- also it contributes, and I think that anyone that does exercise can, can amen this, to our overall sense of, of spiritual or emotional well-being. And so that's why if, if you have anything other than sort of the garden variety, depression and anxiety, one of the first things that a doctor will ask you is if you exercise. If you're doing this 30 minutes of exercise a day, or if you're getting some rigorous exercise in. Because exercise stimulates healthy chemical function in the brain's pleasure center. As humans, we're both physical and non-physical. Feelings of wellness are a mix of both. You can be physically fit as a fiddle. If you're spiritually unhealthy, you're you're no better off in a lot of ways. You look good. You feel good physically. You have bigger muscles. Just means when you die, it's going to take you a little longer to decay than it might take me. We're all going there. But then also, there's this little bit that Paul has to say about physical fitness, isn't there? He wrote this to his friend Timothy, who he mentored and who he discipled. He said, train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. As it holds promise for the present life and the life to come. So I guess, first of all, you have to believe that there's a life after this life. I mean, we're more than our bodies, okay? There's more to us than our bodies. Something in us survives the death experience. Okay? How do I know I'm more than my body? Well, I could cut off an arm or leg and still be the same person. I might be, you know, have some disadvantages at that point. Okay? We're more than our bodies. We are body and we are soul. We are body and we are spirit. So what exactly then, having said all this, what exactly does the cross of Jesus make us fit for? What areas of life do we really need to be cross-fit? Here are some major categories. I'm going to take them in reverse order of Paul's saying, and I'm going to put the life to come first. How does the cross fit us for eternity in the presence of God? Because again, if indeed the soul and the body survive death, and again, it's not only uh, not, not only are there testimonies to that of near-death experiences, but we have the Word of God, which of course is greater than any sort of experience that we could know. Only Jesus Christ and Him crucified fits us for eternity in the presence of God. How so? In the cross of Jesus, we have propitiation, expiation, and substitution. So there's that word, right? Quite simply, propitiation is the wrath of God satisfied. Whether or not it's popular to say in this world today matters very little. God is full of wrath towards unrepentant sinners. God's nature is such that wrath is God's response to sin, to rebellion. 
God will pour out wrath. And why shouldn't God? Why shouldn't God pour out wrath? We know what it's like to have someone act against us. Okay, so let's, let's call it sin. Our child sins against us. Our co-worker sins against us. Okay, so they do something. They, they gossip about us. They, they slander us. They, they don't do something they should have done. Uh, they do something they shouldn't have done. Okay, so they've acted against us. So, so you know what it's like to begin to feel that wrath, right? Well, what does it take to satisfy your wrath when somebody acts against you? And tr- truth be told, we don't carry out wrath that we would like to because the law or company policy, something stands in our way of executing vengeance. We're human and fallible. We get overly wrathful about wrong things and we sense no wrath at things that we ought to. But God, by definition, cannot be wrong and His wrath, therefore, cannot be over-exaggerated or overdone. It's, it is perfect wrath. This, by the way, is why hell, I think, is eternal. Humans cannot make up for their, for their, uh, for their broken relationship for this, with God in any way. We, we don't have it in us. We can't make up for that. Okay? They can't repay God. It's just not what we do. Sin is who we are. You understand? Sin is not just something we do. Sin is who we are. Anytime a lost soul thinks, well, I've done some bad things, but I've done some good things to make up for it, even that is incurring the wrath of God. Because it thinks in some way that I'm able to somehow be in front of this perfected holy being with that. Get pulled over for doing 70 and a 45, and then tell the policeman, yeah, I, I, was, I was 25 miles over the speed limit, but, but I, I do stop every stop sign. Right? Well, oh, okay. Go ahead. Ow! Oh. I mean, I think it's probably going to agitate the officer a little further. Brother Ken, amen? It's going, to, it's, going to, it's going to aggravate him a little bit further. So even though in hell God's wrath is being... And I, I know I'm getting a little sort of philosophical here. But even though in hell God's wrath is being poured out eternally, justice is never satisfied. And that's why it's ongoing. Because if God's justice and His wrath at that point were satisfied, then the person would, would be released from that. The soul would, would be free from that. And, but it's not. So we're told in Scripture... But good news, Christ on the cross satisfies God's wrath. Right? God poured out His wrath on Jesus who freely took that wrath. For, for believers, there is no wrath remaining. D.A. Carson says, wrath. D.A. Carson, the wrath of God. I think it's a Canadian thing. That's the wrath of God. God has exhausted His wrath account. Right? He's bankrupted His wrath. Jesus is, as the great J.I. Packham once said, our wrath absorber. Jesus is our wrath absorber. You know what a shock absorber is on a car, right? If your shock absorbers are no good, you feel every bump that goes over the road. Expiation is the removal of guilt. This, like propitiation, has its origins in the Old Testament and the the sacrificial system. I won't get into. But Jesus is the ultimate guilt offering who carries off our guilt. He's the scapegoat. He's the scapegoat of old. We cannot stand before God with guilt. And nor do we have to. And then finally, Jesus is our substitute. I said a few minutes ago that we are not just sinners, we are sin. So, it's not that we're basically good people who make a few mistakes and do a few bad things. Essentially, our, 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 our essential nature is that we're bad people who occasionally make a mistake and do a good thing. Now, that's offensive for sure. But the mature Christian has no argument with that statement at all. 
Scripture says that Jesus on the cross, who knew no sin, knew no sin became sin for us. Now, I don't know if we can really get our head around that so much. He, he made him who knew no sin become sin. Not just become an action. So it's not as if, you know, you're a thief. Jesus became a thief on the cross. Or Jesus, he became sort of, he became the cause. You know, you get symptoms of a cold and you, you can treat the symptoms, but it's still impossible to cure the common cold. We've got a million and one ways to sort of treat the effects of sin in our life, but we can't cure sin. He became sin. He became the very thing that God hates. But since he never actually sinned, he was, as the, the Apostle Peter was able to do, he was able to bear our sins in his own body on the tree or, or on the cross so that we being dead to sin could live for relationship with God. So without the crucifixion of Christ, without, uh, without our own personal expression of faith in that, relationship with God is not possible. He had no sin of his own. And, and now because Jesus is not only human but divine, He's able to satisfy God's wrath without having to do it eternally. Because it takes a divine person to fully absorb divine wrath. And so I think that that, you know, we, we can scratch at the mystery of this. The cross also, therefore, fits us to understand the seriousness of sin. And this is a fundamental problem for, for a lot of people, I think. You just don't really appreciate how, appreciate how serious I mean, we don't even know what sin is. I mean, we don't even, you know, we, we, we get insulted or put down just for sort of suggesting that something that we might do or someone else might do is actually wrong. Not just wrong for you, but like objectively wrong. Like you shouldn't do it. And it's almost impossible to find things that everybody would agree on is wrong. So we have to come up with extreme things to prove that there's such a thing as something being objectively wrong. In other words, being wrong by itself, not just because you think it's wrong and not wrong. You know, so you have to come up with, with ridiculously crazy things, you know. It, it's wrong to, to torture cats for fun. Okay, I, I think most people would agree that that's, that that's wrong. If anyone thinks that's not wrong, you need more than a Sunday sermon. You need help. We can help you. God has rightly accused humanity of loving everything and anything before God. And in place of God. And the examples of this idolatry are multiplied throughout history. In our thoughts, in our actions, in our will, we have convinced ourselves that God is a great big pain in the neck and that God is our greatest competition to ruling the universe. God stands in the way of you being Lord of the universe. We probably never thought of it that way. But just don't get your way and see what happens, regardless of your age. Because we all whine. I'll say that to my little Aurora. Just don't whine. You can ask. You can ask Daddy. You can ask Mommy. Just don't whine. But then I thought, Pat, man, you whine all the time, you big baby. We all whine. This is what we call sin. J.I. Packer once said, sin is the will to abolish God. Sin is the will to abolish God. D.A. Carson calls our sin problem the de-godding of God. Yeah. Now we're getting close, right? Somebody once, <clears throat> somebody once said that, you know, humans, as humans, we're all potential Hitlers. We're all potential Hitlers. And that sounds pretty, it sounds like, I mean, I wouldn't never be a Hitler. Given the right conditions, you had a good upbringing, you've been surrounded by good, good morals, even if, it, you, you know, you have no sort of religious context, 
and you don't know that that's a great grace from God to you, that you've been given that, that that's for you, right? That, that you've been in touch with that, that you've been treated nice, that you see people treated nice. This is a good thing. So I think it's accurate to say that human beings are all potential Hitlers. But I would go further still and say that all human beings are potential God-killers. God must deal with this. If you want to know what God thinks of the lustful stare at another human being, look at Jesus Christ crucified. If you want to know what God thinks of hating people that you disagree with, look at Jesus Christ crucified. If you want to know what God thinks about genuine racism, look at Christ crucified. If you want to know what God thinks of sexual sin, look at Jesus on the cross. If you want to know what God thinks of cheating, lying, disobeying parents, slandering, gossiping, faithlessness, envying, coveting, and arrogance, and a bunch of other stuff we easily accept in ourselves and in society, look at the cross of Jesus. That's what God thinks about it. That's His point of view. And if you can't see it there, I can't help you. No one can, because nothing so adequately communicates what God thinks about sin as Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This morning, Randy, and again, he says, imagine, because we're talking about angels, you missed a great discussion. I know you, no, not everyone can make it downstairs, but it was great this morning. And so he says, imagine, because we're talking a little about angels, imagine if you could just see all the evil there really is. You know, imagine what, what, would, what would that do to us? And I think that's a great point, brother. But if I could stand on your shoulders with that a little bit and say, I think we can see all of the potential evil there is if we look at Christ crucified. Because I think it is the greatest evil that's ever been committed. I don't think anything else can match that. Nothing else can fit us and make us fearful of God's wrath. Near the cross, a trembling soul, love and mercy found me. At the same time, nothing can fit us like the cross to understand God's love. You want to understand God's love? You take a look at Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's John 3.16, right? Do they still show that at sporting events? That used to be around. I don't think that's not... Right? God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Well, He didn't just give Him for, you know, to be with us. He gave Him on the cross. Jesus said, no greater love than this than to lay down your life for your friend. And yet Jesus laid down his life for us when we were not his friends. Paul said, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the wrath absorber for us. No song or movie or book or new age philosophy can fit us to know love. And there are a million books on love out there. And therefore to love others as that which is shown in Christ and Him crucified. The cross fits us to understand love. The cross fits us to receive love. And the cross fits us to give love. Jesus taught that those who have been forgiven much also love much. So how much do we love? As well, the cross fits us for forgiving others. The cross uniquely fits us for forgiving others. The forgiveness that we receive from God, knowing what agonies Christ endured to rescue us and reconcile us to God, is of such a nature and excess that it causes in the genuine believer a desire to forgive others. The desire we've been given creates in us a desire to be forgiving of others. It literally changes. Literally, God does something. Man. It's, it's different than what we do. When God forgives, when God forgives it, 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 it fundamentally alters us in a way. It makes us want 
to forgive. Genuine forgiveness received cannot be contained in our hearts. It must necessarily flow to others. And then the cross fits us to resist temptation when temptation comes, and temptation always comes on this side of the cemetery, doesn't it? We are always dealing with temptation to do wrong. And Scripture tells us to reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Here's how this works. And here's how our faith is summoned. So here's a few passages from Romans. Stay with me now. Shake off the groggies. Shake off the heat and humidity. Because it's tough, isn't it? It's just tough. It's tough focusing. It's a little easier for me because I'm all wound up up here. But just stay with me in there. You know, stand up for a minute. Reach over to the person next to you. Slap them in the face. Sprinkle water. Do something to them. Because this is scripture. You want to hear this. Paul said that if you are baptized into Christ, you are baptized into his death. Okay? Now this is deep water. Pardon the pun. Paul, Paul said under the direction of God, the Holy Spirit, he said, the world is crucified to me and I am crucified to the world. And he says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So that tells us something. That tells us outside of Christ we're enslaved to sin. That is, we can't stop sinning. We can't stop wanting to sin as well. So this, this is Romans 6, this context, those two verses, okay? And so he says, he mentions baptism. Don't be confused thinking he's talking about water baptism because he's not talking about water baptism in Romans chapter 6. Okay? That's not being immersed in water. A baptism is a joining to. It's a uniting to. Okay? But baptism in water gives us a nice sort of picture of it. Okay? It makes a nice symbol. In other words, the believer is soaked in the death of Jesus. The believer is fully soaked in the death of Jesus. In fact, that word baptism has in its origins uh, the dyeing process of of dyeing clothes. So when you dip a particular cloth in in a dye, it comes out forever changed. Okay? You can't get that back to what it was before. This is what happens to us. We're, we're so, and so the act of water baptism, again, it's a nice reenactment of that, right? Because, because if you're going to really represent baptism the best way, you need to really sort of fully go under, which represents the death of Christ, okay? And that's why we do it that way. And it's, and it's a baptism we don't dry out from. And, and the body of sin, in Romans 6, the body of sin is not talking about the individual's body. The body of sin as we hear about, and Paul mentioned that from time to time, the body of sin, Paul refers to here, is a metaphor for humankind in bondage to sin. It's not a reference to the individual human body, just as the church is the body of Christ, right? The church is called the body of Christ. Lost and unbelieving humanity is the body of sin. Sin is its head in the same way Christ is the head of his body, the church. And sin, therefore, is, in the letter of the Romans, most often synonymous with Satan. Okay? Sin and Satan are very synonymous in the book of Romans. In many places you can sort of supply one for the other. It's the same theology Jesus had when he said to the Pharisees, you are of your father the devil. Paul is very consistent in his theology with Jesus. However, great news, gospel, in Christ we have died to sin because we've been dunked into his death. We are as dead to sin as Jesus is. We are as dead to it as Christ is. Well, we don't get that. We are as dead to sin as Christ is. 
it, that will ultimately be proven in the resurrection. It's going to take the resurrection to complete that. But, but in God's mind, those who are in Christ, those who are in Christ are dead to sin. We can therefore face temptation with confidence and by faith proclaim to ourselves the reality that we're dead to that and that we don't have to yield or give in to it, no matter how strong it feels. This is just simply the case of believing what you truly are. And it's safe to believe truth. I was about nine or ten years old and Evil Knievel was my hero. I really believed that I could set up a ramp on one end of the sandbox and clear it. And jump over that to the other end and come across on the lawn safe. And my friends all believed it. Because nine-year-old boys are great encouragers, aren't they? Yeah, Pat, you can do that. You can do that. So I got on my little orange huffy and I pedaled and pedaled. And I hit that ramp, and I was going, and I thought for sure I had it, and the front wheel came down, and, I, and it hit the inside of the steering wheel, of the, of the sandbox, which is one of the experiences, you know, where they just drove into me. But I thought for sure I could do it. I believed I could do it. But if you believe something, but that belief is not based on truth, you're in trouble, right? We have good reason to believe that these things are so. And I can talk about anybody about that, as, as well as others can in here. What do you believe, and why do you believe it? Not, every, not just every Christian, but every, everyone that, not just every follower of Jesus, but everyone that's not a follower of Jesus, you should be able to answer for yourself, this is what I believe, and this is why I believe it's true. Not just true for me, but it's, it's actually true. This is the way things are. Can you do that? So in experiencing all these things, I think when strong temptation comes, here's where the cross helps us. When we experience recurring and difficult temptation to sin, we may envision ourselves, so to speak, at the scene of the cross, and we behold Jesus all naked and bloody and gasping and moaning in pain, His bones showing, His flesh dangling in crimson ribbons of what used to be His back. Now, I know that's powerful imagery, friends, but if the cross is to fit us, we must know what the cross of Jesus was like. I have not been nearly as graphic as crucifixion actually is. And I would strongly recommend sometime get the gut in you to look up crucifixion and read everything what goes on medically when crucifixion happens. Because it was by far the most singular barbaric form of torture and death in the history of mankind. And it is that torture which God chose to show us what He thinks about sin and to empower us to live in light of the power of sin. You can research what scourging is because Jesus was scourged before he was crucified. Look that up. Some folks just get a little overwhelmed with the gore it takes to really detail what crucifixion is and that is understandable and I don't want to be the guy that makes you walk up and walk out of here. But from time to time, we must let our imaginations bring us there and be confronted with the shocking, vivid reality of it. Isaiah 52.14 said, Just as there are many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being. Many people have been crucified in history on those cruel Roman crosses. Yet scripture reveals that Christ was disfigured beyond any human being. This wasn't just another crucifixion. This was monstrous. And so we sing, What wondrous love is this, O my soul? Oh, my soul, what wondrous love is this, oh, my soul. What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. To bear the dreadful curse for my soul. And then the cross fits us for suffering. What bothers us most about suffering? 
I think for most of us, it's surely the fear that the suffering is not going to end. Or not knowing when it's going to end. For we want to know why there is suffering. And that why question, it's haunting. So how does the cross fit us for suffering? Well, Scripture tells us that as Jesus was, was being crucified, He was anticipating a certain joy. Joy that awaited Him after the cross. For that reason, the Scripture says, for the joy set before Him, Jesus endured the cross. Those are the words of Scripture. So that joy was at least in part the finishing the work the Father sent Him to do. It was the joy of knowing that by His suffering, His bride, the church, would be washed clean and made beautiful for Him. His sufferings prepared the bride for the wedding day, a wedding arranged by the Father. You know, Jesus suffered His entire life. He suffered long before the cross. He left the glories and the perfections of heaven. He left everything. He left intimacy, eternal love between Father, Son, and Spirit for this. So Jesus' sufferings began at His conception. And, and they reached there. They were at the citadel of His sufferings were the cross. But they began at His conception. So therefore the cross fits us for suffering because it reminds us there was a joy that made even the terrors of the cross bearable. There's something beyond it. And by the way, the resurrection, Jesus' resurrection is the proof of that. I'm not here to preach on the resurrection. But the, but, but the resurrection is God's amen to everything Christ did. The degree of joy far exceeds the degree of suffering. And if we look at the cross and see how horrible it is, and the degree of, of, of just awe and horror that, that is, then we can say there's a degree of joy which is greater than that, which makes that bearable. And the suffering will end. And his book, Heaven, How I Hear, Colin Smith wrote, When suffering comes into your life, you may find yourself doubting God's love. But don't measure God's love by what's happening to you. Measure it by what happened to Jesus. Okay, so, I'm not going to go, I wouldn't go through all these. There are several imperatives, there are several instructions, the directions that are given to us in the New Testament. And here, in the letter to the Corinthians, there are at least 11 things Paul addresses. And again, I'm not going to cover them, other than to mention some of them. And these are things that the cross fits the recipient of the letter to be, or to do. Because being is doing, or it should be. Okay, what are some of the things he takes care of here? Okay, well, in, in the letter to the Corinthians, he talks about spiritual gifts because spiritual gifts are being abused. Okay, he confronts Christians who are neglecting the poor at the Lord's Supper feasts. He corrects Christians who want to sue each other in court. He tackled the sin of husbands and wives who deprive each other of sexual intimacy. That's a big one. Enough to make it in Scripture. He taught about divorce. He spoke about his right to receive monetary support for his ministry, though he chose to earn his own living so as not to be a burden to others. All of these things, the cross fits us to follow the law of Christ, which is the law of love. The law of Christ is the law of love. So, since the cross of Jesus reconciles us to God, we become sort of like that. God's desires and priorities, God's desires and priorities are infectious to those for whom the cross has reconciled them to God. You know what it's like to hear infectious laughter. You hear this laughter, and for some reason people have this gift of laughter, I call it, where you just laugh because their laugh makes you feel so good. You don't even know what they're laughing at. Remember years ago on 
America's Funniest Videos, they had these five little babies, they were quintuplets, did I get the right? And they're all just laughing. I have no idea what they're laughing at, but their laughing made me feel great. We, we, we just felt good at their laughter. What happens when somebody yawns? And I commend you, because I haven't seen a lot of yawning. So, well, what happens when someone yawns? Don't you yawn? I mean, it's almost inevitable, right? And for some reason, our, our humanness is so connected to one another that we share these things automatically. Someone yawns and someone else is yawning. We just got one down below and I see someone else fighting to keep it away. So my point is made. It seems being united to Christ is like that. His holiness for the Christian, his the follower of Jesus, is infectious. His mercy is infectious. His compassion is infectious. We see God in Christ being holy and merciful and compassionate and our response is just like the response to someone's yawn. We pursue holiness, we show mercy, we show compassion. That is our autonomic response. And autonomic response is involuntary and unconscious. It should be our unconscious, our involuntary... It can be. I want to say it should because we're all in so many places in spiritual health. But it can be our natural response to be merciful. What are you giving it a thought? What are you going to say? I'm going to be merciful now to X, Y, Z. It just happens. We have Jesus saying, Lord, and we have people saying, Jesus, when did we see you hungry and feed? Jesus said, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was in prison, you visited me. And the, and the people are like, when did I do that? And he said, when you did it to one of your brothers and sisters, you did it to me. I didn't even know I was doing it. So anyway, last thing I want to mention here, and this is because so many people struggle with this, and <clears throat> people in the faith and out of the faith. This might be sort of the singular greatest concern that people have. And that is, why is there so much evil and bad in the world? Why is there so much evil and bad in the world? And we should wrestle with that, and it should cause us difficulty. It's not an easy subject, is it? But, I think the cross of Jesus fits us for discussing this evil in a rather unexpected way. And here it is. The cross of Jesus demonstrates that things are even worse than we think they are. That's the answer. Now try that response on a skeptic when they say, if God is good, why is there so much evil in the world? Tell them, oh, you don't know the half of it. You you don't know the half of it. You don't know how much evil there is. Tell them we live in a universe so evil that its inhabitants executed its God. Explain to them in the most graphic details you can summon up how humankind tortured its God. When asked what kind of a God allows an Adolf Hitler or a Stalin or a person who does terrible things to children, tell them the same God that allowed his creation to crucify the creator and author of life. Because there's no answer, in a sense, that's going to make people comfortable with evil. We shouldn't be comfortable with evil. What do we think there's going to be an answer? Oh, oh, okay, I feel better now. Now I understand why there's so much evil. That's madness. You should never understand or accept this. But you can go further and say it's a lot worse than you think it is. Because the same God who creates the conditions for wonderful medicine to be discovered and for many conveniences to be enjoyed, what we call creature comforts, for those very creatures who screamed, they are the very same creatures who screamed with vein-popping intensity, Crucify Him! And they screamed it! Crucify Him! They hated Him! 
And yet this is the very evil, this very evil act done by man was used by God to begin renovating the universe by reconciling all things to himself. The very thing, the very greatest evil ever committed, yet God used that to begin to reverse evil in the universe. Tell them what Brother Tony Renke of Desiring God Ministries concludes. He says, quote, In rejecting Christ, the humanity he came to save brought the cross upon him. When asked what we offer in the accomplishment of our redemption, we can only say, we killed the author of life, we rejected our Redeemer, and by God, and by it, God saved us. Incredible, end quote. So as you ponder these things today and the days ahead, bear in mind also this remarkable statement with which I close. He, God, who did not spare his own son Jesus, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Amen. We'll have the... Music team comes up and close out our last hymn before we have the benediction.